We come now to our sermon passage this morning, and we have reached Exodus 14, one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, the Red Sea crossing. This is the Israelites leaving Egypt, and one final uh, chance for Egypt to chase after them. But um, there's so much drama in the passage that anything else I'm going to say before I read is just going to get in the way. So uh, this is God's Word from Exodus 14, good, beautiful, and true. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go, and we have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready, and he took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near uh, Pi-Heroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and, they were, and, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Israelites? I mean the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians, Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? But tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew, and he went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. And throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so that neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. And during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud of the Egyptian army, and he threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of the chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it. And the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Egyptians went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their left and on their right and on their left. 
That day the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in, his Mo- in Moses, His servant. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that in this dramatic action we see You at work. You who defend the cause of the oppressed. You who love those who are righteous in You. You who frustrate the ways and the plans of the wicked. So I pray that you would work in us now by your Spirit to show us Jesus so clear, so clearly that we would put our hope not in princes, not in armies, not in chariots, not in strength that we think we have, but that we would put our hope and our trust in you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I love horror movies. It's no secret and always have. Always been a fan of horror movies, and horror movies have different tropes. They have different plot points that repeat over and over again, and one of them is this. You get to the end of the movie. The people have been chased by this monster the whole time, and it's suddenly over. You think the monster's done, and they're safe. And they finally breathe this sigh of relief, and just then the monster springs up, right? Back to life to grab their leg or whatever and pull them down. And just when they think it's safe, boom, there he is again. And that's what we have here in Exodus 14. The Israelites have been freed from slavery by God. And he did it in dramatic action. We read it earlier in Exodus in the plagues. Where God symbolically declares war on the false gods of Egypt. And systematically, one by one, he shows his power over these false gods. He drags them out to the light to show that they have no power. And in fact, it even talks about him battling, in a sense, Pharaoh. Pharaoh who embodied all the power of Egypt. And so this great monster of Egypt that had oppressed the Israelites, that had squashed God's people for centuries, has been defeated. And the Israelites are setting out into freedom. The monster has been defeated. But just when they thought it was safe, just when they're marching out boldly, as it says in verse 8, the powers of Egypt spring out of nowhere to try to re-enslave the Israelites. And so God defends them again. Yet another display of His power for His people. To pry then His treasured children from the grasp of Pharaoh. And here we catch a glimpse of God's grace and all its simplicity and how it responds to the complexity of darkness in our world. And we learn that God's intentions is to save His people and that those intentions cannot be thwarted. God's intentions to bring His grace and freedom to His people cannot be thwarted by any power amassed against him. That's what we learn here. And so what I want to do is break this into a couple different sections to get our mind around this big story. And the first one is this. Darkness is complicated. Evil is complicated. The darkness of our world is beyond complicated. I say it often that things in this world do not work the way they're supposed to. And that is an understatement. God created this world very good. You can look at it in Genesis 1. When God calls all things into being, He gets to the end of His work and He looks at it and He says, This is very good. This is very good. The human sin and rebellion, it means that goodness of creation has been marred, has been twisted, has been wounded. So that when we look at what we live in, we don't see very good. We might see it in flashes. We might see it here and there in, 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 in just us. More often than not, we look out and we see brokenness in every part of our world. 
Things do not work the way they're supposed to. And the darkness of our world is complicated. It's complex. It impacts the structures we build. It impacts our hearts, the way we think, and the things we value. And we don't just see that in our own world. We see that here in the book of Exodus. Egypt has been exposed and defeated by God, as we, as we said. He's shown himself in power on behalf of the Israelite slaves. He's chosen sides and he picked the humble poor. And it's been a very clear defeat. God has won resoundingly. There was no question. He took every round in the battle. And what had happened? Pharaoh got to the end of it and he said, I'm, I'm beaten. Please leave. <laughs> I'm done. Please get out. But notice in verse 5, Pharaoh and his officials suddenly start to do the math. They pull out the spreadsheet for Egypt's budget and they realize, wait, our wealth is built on the back of this labor. And now they're all leaving. What are we, who's going to do these jobs? Who's going to do these jobs? And so all of a sudden they have a change of mind. They realize what the Israelites being free will mean. It will mean the loss of all their wealth. They won't have slaves to make do what they want to be done anymore. Sin has warped what they love. And they love their wealth so much that it warps the way they think. And here's what I mean. Pharaoh gathers his armies in his chariots. He pulls out all the stops and grabs all his physical power to get these slaves back. But he should know, because we just walked through these ten plagues, that no matter what he brings, God will defeat it. He should know that. But the darkness in his heart has clouded his mind. He not only warps what he values and loves, the wealth of Egypt above these human beings created in the image of God, it has warped the way he thinks. He's not even thinking straight. I've got to get these slaves back. He can't defeat God. And it doesn't make sense. But that's because evil, darkness, it by nature doesn't make sense. When we try to make sense of it, we get our mind wrapped all up because by nature, the marring of God's good creation, the evil in this world, the darkness that we see does not make sense. We should not be reconciled to it. We shouldn't try to explain it away because to make ourselves feel better. It just does not Makes sense. And so what does Pharaoh do? He falls back on the tools that darkness so often uses. He uses domineering power and intimidation. He thinks if he gets this entire army to chase after the Israelites, they're going to see the army and they're going to go, okay, all right, we'll go back. We'll go back. We can't stand up against you. Now, we know darkness is complicated. And the wickedness that we see in our world is nonsensical. The sin of our own hearts. The things we see in the news. I mean, we're inundated week after week after week with wickedness on such wide display. The loss of life in such nonsensical ways. The throwing away of life. But how often do we, like the Israelites here, we're simply blindsided by this complicated darkness. Maybe we're walking boldly throughout our world and like they are in verse 8. And we look up and we discover a looming darkness on our tail. Maybe it's an unwelcome diagnosis or it's a phone call we don't want to hear about a family member. Maybe it's a temptation in our heart that we have been fighting and we want it to go away, but it just keeps coming back. Maybe it's something out of our control that we didn't choose that suddenly takes up the entire horizon. And when we look up, all we can see is darkness. When we look up, all we can see is armies chasing after us. 
And suddenly everything gets so much more complicated and we cannot see straight. So what do we do when the darkness gets complicated and when it descends on us, what do we do? Well, what do the Israelites do here? They immediately go from fear as to what they see to accusation. The darkness they see in front of them calls out to the darkness in their own hearts and they forget in the darkness what they knew in the light. They forget in the darkness what they knew in the light that God was for them. That God was freeing them. And that brings us to our second section. Darkness is complicated, yes, but the intentions of God are simple. The grace of God is simple. And I'll explain what I mean in a second. So Moses responds to the people in verse 13. Look, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Into this complicated darkness, the evil pursuing them, the threats of power that had held them bound for so long, Moses reminds them that it was God who brought you out of slavery in the first place. He did that. It is God who brought that deliverance. He is the one who fights for His people. Now remember, they had just been freed and they had not lifted a finger. And He reminds them again that the darkness that they see so filling up their vision that their very thoughts are clouded, that that darkness is what God will deal with and deal with finally. But again, the darkness has clouded their vision. They have forgotten in the darkness what they knew in the light. That God was for them and that He was freeing them. And that was His simple intention. God was freeing them. God was saving them. Now our struggles with evil in this world, it won't be an army chasing us. It, more than likely not. It won't be an army chasing us and we're stuck you know, with our backs against the sea behind us. That won't be us. But we commit sins and they just pile higher and higher. We sin against others and we wrong them and we're sinned against and we're wounded over and over again. We suffer as we live just walking through a broken world. But what can we do? We can turn to fear and accusation like the Israelites, but the words of Moses here to the Israelites are words written for us. He will fight for you. God will fight for you. You need only to be still. Sin will not have the final word for you. And that's not because you're really strong or you have a lot of resources at your disposal. It's not because you have good intentions to fight. God will fight for you. Sin will not have the final word for you because grace will be the final word for you in Jesus. Your sin, the sin of others, cannot have the final word about you because God will fight for you. Now when it says here in verse 14, be still, it doesn't literally mean freeze and don't move. We know that because in verse 15, God tells them to move on. Their being still here was not stopping and remaining stuck in their fear. It was not pausing, but it was the stillness and the peace in the midst of darkness. A realization that the sureness of God's intentions, the simplicity of His grace for us, and that sure intention for us, it can bring us peace in the middle of the storm. It can bring us a confidence that whatever is in front of us cannot get to me. It cannot win. Whatever darkness is in front of me cannot get me. Because God has the final word. He is fighting for me. 
Now we know that because of what God tells Moses to do next. And this is very funny to me. There's an army from the most powerful empire that the world had known to that point amassed behind them to intimidate them. A group of Israelites that did not have weapons that are standing there at this sea. And God tells Moses to do what? Raise his staff and stretch out his hand. Raise, raise his staff and stretch out his hand. God's going to do a mighty act of deliverance in the face of evil. And he has Moses do this. It's silly. You know, if we're just thinking about it. That's all he has. It's like that commercial from a few, few years ago. I can't remember what company it was. Do you guys remember this? It was a little boy dressed up like Darth Vader. And he was pretending he had the force. And his parents had like the remote start for their car. And the kid lifted up his hand. And his parents touched the button and the car came on. And the kid was like... I used the force to start the car. The little boy thinks he caused this car to start. But it's the same thing here. Except for he tells Moses what's going on. But that's all Moses does. Is this. And here the intentions of, his, of God for his people are clear. In the midst of the fogginess of the darkness that surrounds them, that has them cornered, God shows that his power is for them. His power is for their freedom. It's for their salvation. And those enemies that loom so large are dealt with by God. And God's justice comes to be a reality. The Lord fights for them, and they need only be still. That leads me to my last section. He will lead us to freedom. So God fights for His people, and we see here that the Israelites cross over this Red Sea on dry land. He uses the power of this wind to drive back the water so that they can cross through in perfect safety. Now, there's a Red Sea that you can go to today. If you have the money, you can get on the plane, you can go across, and you can go to the Red Sea. But we aren't sure exactly where the Israelites crossed over. We aren't sure, physical location-wise, exactly where this happened. In fact, what's translated Red Sea here, if you go back to the Hebrew, it's the Sea of Reeds. Not Red Sea, Sea of Reeds. And that could be any number of places in that region. So we don't know the exact location, coordinates-wise, where this happened. But the point isn't to find the exact spot and us take a pilgrimage there and be impressed and look at the water and it's cool. That's not the point. That's why God didn't give us coordinates. He could have of the exact location. Because the point isn't for us to read this and to think that something has just happened in the past. Isn't this a cool thing that happened before? Where God did this cool thing in the past. When we read scripture, we aren't just reading history. We aren't just reading history. We're reading an account of the living God who is living and active today for us. This God is our God. This God is our God. Our point is not to read this and find a history. Our faith is in the living God who is present with us in the here and now, who is guiding us. Now, over and over again in Scripture, God shows himself in similar ways to here at the Red Sea. His people find themselves, often by their own doing, in impossible situations where they have nobody else to turn to. And they cry out, and God acts on their behalf. And God fights for them to overcome wickedness and to bring His grace into this world. Now, of course, we see that most clearly in Jesus. We see that most clearly in Jesus. At the time of Jesus, when He comes into this world, the promised land, 
The place that was supposed to be like the headquarters for God's kingdom and the peace of God coming to be in this world. The promised land itself had become a place overrun with injustice. In fact, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew calls the land of Israel Egypt. And the king there, Herod, he says he's become like Pharaoh. And Israel's become like Egypt, a place of oppression and death. And Jesus arrives into a world that is absolutely overrun with darkness. It's overrun with wickedness. It's overrun with religious leaders who use and accuse God's people. It's overrun with the activity of Satan and the kingdom of darkness popping up at every turn. There's a reason why when Jesus comes, he's doing exorcisms. He's casting out demons. That's nowhere else in the Bible. Jesus comes into a time of great, great darkness. And it seems like an impossible situation. A daunting darkness clouding everything. And what does God do? Well, unlike the Israelites here crossing over on dry land and saved from the hand of the Egyptians, Jesus is handed over. He walks straight into the hands of the powers and all their impressive strength. And Jesus is seemingly defeated. That's what the cross is supposed to be. A systematic shaming and pulling apart of every piece of humanity from Jesus Christ. For the Romans and the religious leaders to say, look, this is what happens when you come up against our power. This is what we do. That's what happened to Jesus in the face of it. He's tossed away into a grave, dealt with. And surely the powers of darkness rejoice. Jesus is out of the way that could keep humanity in bondage, but no. No, what looked like defeat in Jesus was really God showing the extent of his intentions to save his people. Remember, we talked about the simple intentions of God's grace. He is intent for us to be loved immeasurably and forever. He is intent for us to be loved. And we see the extent of that intention in Jesus, where he frees us. Where he frees us from the bondage of sin. At the cross, Jesus takes care of the root of all this darkness and wickedness that we've been talking about. He becomes sin for us, in the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. He becomes sin for us. He takes on the punishment that our sin deserves. He faced unjust judgment like so many in history have. That even injustice would be something that God endured with his people. And he takes on the sin and the wickedness of this world and he drags it on his back into the tomb and leaves it there. And when Jesus rises from the dead three days later, he rises in victory. And in his resurrection, he rises as one of us, paving a way, not just through water, but through death itself to freedom. That we might cross over in his path, in his grace, not in danger, not overcome. And what do we do? We watch our God be victorious. We be still. We get swept up into this grace. Or like we read in Ephesians 2, and uh, we receive it, what? As, uh, as a gift. Because we're saved. We're rescued by God, by His grace. Not by works. We didn't want to do it. Even the faith that we are given to respond to it is a gift. It's all grace, front to back, period. We just get swept up into it. I'd like to conclude today with asking what might seem like a really weird question. 
What shape is the moon? What shape is the moon? It's round, right? Moon's round. Moon's always round. But if you go out tonight, I just looked it up and what stage of the moon we're in. Tonight, when you go out, you're going to see a waning crescent moon. You're just going to see a little sliver in the sky, right? Tomorrow's the new moon, so you're just going to go outside, and if it's clear enough, you're going to see a dark outline of the moon, but it's not going to be shining. And that's if it's not cloudy. Some nights it's cloudy, you can't see the moon at all. Sometimes it's a full moon, and it's shining brightly. But in all of that, what shape is the moon? The moon is always round. The moon is always round. As we live in this world, there's going to be times when it's going to be very hard to see that simple grace of God. It's going to be really hard to see His goodness. We're going to lift our eyes, and the goodness of God that shines brightly like a, like a full moon is going to be clouded out in the clouds. We're not going to be able to see it clearly. Sometimes it's going to seem just like a little sliver, a little crescent of goodness in the midst of the darkness. Sometimes it's going to feel like a new moon where we only see just barely the outline. But in all of that, the moon is always round, and God's gracious intentions for you are simple. He loves you. He loves you and He's bringing you home to Him. He's bringing you to freedom. And no amount of cloudiness or the darkness and evil in this world, the darkness and evil in your own heart, can separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. The moon is always round. God is always good. And He is intent to bring every bit of His immeasurable grace to you both now and forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your goodness. I thank You... That we see here you working on behalf of your people, chased by wickedness, chased by evil, surrounded on every side seemingly by darkness that clouds their vision. And we see in them a picture of ourselves as we walk through this world, a world so often clouded and our visions uh, uh, obstructed. I pray, Lord, that we would take what we've learned today of the Lord Jesus Christ and your gracious intentions and the complexity of the darkness of this world, the simplicity of your light, and that you would cause us to look to you. And that you would teach us, God, that the moon is always round. Even when we can't see it, that you and your grace is always there and always for us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.